0: diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo.
1: Wow, here we are.
0: It feels good every time. Mm-hmm. So we've been busy for a little while here on Midwest Murder. Don, what are, what are people saying about Midwest Murder?
1: Well, some amazing things. Uh, and so we want to remind everybody to rate, review. Um, it's not just to, to pump up our egos. It is actually, um, it helps us trend, uh, and it's taking us places, so we greatly appreciate that. Um, So this one is, great podcast. I discovered this podcast by mistyping while searching for another one. The hosts are great and easy to follow. The storytelling makes me feel like I'm right there. I was more than excited to listen to a podcast that revolves around my home state. I no longer live in North Dakota, and it's refreshing to hear the accents that make me feel like I'm back home. <laughs> Can't we don't wait. have accents. Can't wait for more <laughs> episodes. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's there's no denying I, th- that we haven't. Yeah, I guess they're anyway. there. So, that's super cool. Thank you very, very much. Um, that was from Megan from North Dakota on December 13th. This one is A. Christofferson, 1,000 a stars. If I could give a 1,000 stars, I would. This podcast does an amazing job telling the bone-chilling stories that have happened right in our own backyard. Love, love, love. So addicting. So those are super cool to hear. A 1,000 stars. Those? I guess our a work is stars. done here. I guess we're done. Good night. Um, but uh, thank you um, for rating and reviewing. Super cool. Like I said, it does take us places. So if you haven't, um, we would greatly greatly appreciate it
0: it's a super um, big deal and yeah. it's massively uplifting um so thank you guys everybody who takes the time yeah. out of their day to and rate and review um write a review for us and hey you write a review on the show it could be your name appearing on an episode of midwest murder yeah, so and a shout out to, to
1: we have some international listeners just a um, quick one quick yeah, shout out and and we have uh, we have a consistent listener in a certain part of france so we when, see you we see you and i want to i I want to know who you are, so um just because i'm I'm nosy like that. And uh, we also have a huge following in Nebraska, which is um, super cool. So Nebraska, we're coming for you eventually, we promise.
0: Usually, we start by highlighting a few of the major events that took place in the same year as our murder. However, this episode requires me to paint a broader picture as it will not be the last time we visit the region. Oil was discovered in North Dakota in 1910, but there was no real oil industry in the state until 1951. There was an oil boom in North Dakota in the 70s and 80s, but it was relatively small, peaking around 150,000 barrels a day back in 84. Geologists always knew there was a massive amount of oil beneath the Bakken formation in western North Dakota, but it was too deep in the ground to get at it profitably, The invention of fracking, extended reach horizontal drilling, changed everything in the oil industry and Western North Dakota. The Bakken Formation is thought to hold about 7.4 billion barrels of recoverable oil, and starting in 2002, the rush was on to get all that sweet crude out of the ground and into somebody's bank account. Because of fracking, the U.S. was producing more oil month to month than Russia or Saudi Arabia, and North Dakota produced more of that oil than any other state except Texas. How much oil was North Dakota producing? Well, oil production in the Williston area went from under 1 million barrels a month in 2009 to over 6 million barrels a month in 2015. There were nearly 50 oil companies operating over 8,000 active oil wells in western North Dakota at the height of the boom. So let's take a look at at some of the stats. Over 40,000 jobs in the oil industry at this time, nearly 20,000 additional jobs supporting the industry. There's a population explosion in Williston, particularly a Bakken hub city doubled in population and people got really rich, like filthy rich.
1: Well, and if, if I mean, for those of you in the room, <clears throat> excuse me, for those of you in the room um, and those of you listening that were in the area, I mean, it was, it was asses and elbows everywhere, everywhere. You know?
0: Yeah, in the the state of North Dakota at a time when the rest of the United States was in an economic crisis, we were enjoying a billion dollar surplus in our state coffers. At one point, there were more new millionaires being made in western North Dakota than anywhere in the world, estimated at 2,000 new millionaires per year. Oil field laborers were making 60 to 100,000 dollars a year. Bartenders were making 500 bucks a night in tips. Strippers from all over the country flocked to Williston where they could make up to 3,000 bucks a night. If they were good. If they were good. If they weren't good. Which means the bad ones were making making a third of of that. that that, So.
1: The good ones were making that much.
0: Landowners were making fifty dollars to 100000 a month for mineral rights. Apartment buildings were completely leased out before they were even finished being built. Small Spartan one-bedroom units rented for over $2,500 a month, and modest three-bedroom units rented for $4,000 a month. By 2014, apartments in Williston were the most expensive in the country, topping even New York City and San Francisco. The most basic motel and hotel rooms cost 250 bucks or more or n- a night, and oil companies booked them in mass for their employees. There were even reports of people living in dumpsters and railroad shipping containers, and of local residents renting out walk-in closets for a thousand bucks a month.
1: And the, the crazy part too was that you know, my not where where we are, two hours, 120 miles from Williston. And they were still busing people from Minot, busing oil workers to Williston.
0: And and housing was stressed here at that time, too, um, following the flood in Minot. So So the majority of oil workers who poured into western North Dakota ended up living in what came to be known as man camps. These were ugly, barren, sprawling trailer parks or RV camps that mushroomed up on the prairies like cancer. Williams County Sheriff Scott Bushing, quote, We have a tremendous transient population. We have very few addresses. We have over 90,000 man camp beds permitted in Williams County alone and countless RVs, RV parks, sanctioned or not. Western North Dakota was not only rolling in cash, it was also boiling with crime. U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics showed that from 2006 to 2012, the rate of violent victimization particularly of aggravated assault, increased 70%. The study also found rates of serious violent victimization, homicide, manslaughter, rape, robbery, sexual assault, and aggravated battery increased 30%. Williston saw calls to police increase from 4,163 in 2006 to 15,954 in 2011.
1: Which is, and that was even here too. I mean, just oh, yeah. it was the whole region. The, the whole region. It was wild.
0: Narcotics investigations skyrocketed, as did drug arrests, which isn't surprising. An oil boom and the huge influx of young men with money in their pockets and no connection to their families or to the community ends up with many of them becoming prime targets for traffickers of sex and drugs. It's easy to see how a boom on the surface leads to many legitimate and profitable ventures throughout the region. But what we don't always consider is with that legal enterprise comes a criminal enterprise. So for every legitimate business owner, you have somebody who is into human trafficking or selling or making meth. And so where the opportunities and, and, and that region weren't just for people who had legal pursuits.
1: Well, and, and this is, you know, somewhat a similar topic, but um, Backpage.com, that was where you could find anything, you know, trafficking, uh sex worker, anything. You know, that was, that was huge, and it was, like, busting um, big time in, in the Williston area, in that whole region, that Bakken area.
0: It is against this setting that our story... Begins to unfold. Around eight thirty on the evening of april twenty fourth, twenty thirteen, Kelly Blumberg has a typical phone conversation with her boyfriend, Jack Shoal. Just an ordinary how was your day? See you tomorrow kind of phone call. The next morning around ten AM, Kelly calls Jack again but gets no answer. She calls several times during the day, but Jack does not pick up any time she calls. Worried, she drives over to Jack's house around 1:30 in the afternoon to check on him but he's not at home. At 5.30, she returns to Jack's house with her son, Kellen, and his friend, James, to help her look for Jack. As Kelly would later tell law enforcement, quote, Jack's pickup was in the garage. His pickup keys were in a normal place inside the door. Everything seemed to be normal and in place like he was there. I was thinking he must have been in the field, maybe kicking a cow or a horse. So I walked the acreage looking for Jack. And we know, in North Dakota, ranch life can be dangerous. Kelly was worried that maybe Jack had some kind of ranch accident. Perhaps he was injured, out in the field, needing help. It's a large and relatively remote ranch, more than 100 acres of land. While Kelly searches the fields, her son Kellen and friend James search the house in its immediate vicinity. It is her son Kellen who makes the chilling discovery in the driveway at Jack's house. As Kellen would later testify, quote, I seen his glasses, and the hair stood up on my neck, and excuse my language, I said, get the effing cops here right now. I seen a pool of blood, and seen some shell casings. One can only imagine the grip of fear on Kelly Blumberg's heart as she calls 911 to report she believes her boyfriend, Jack Scholl, is missing, and that she fears for his safety. It's a phone call we all have some vague sense of dread about but that none of us can truly know unless we've made it. Within minutes, Sergeant Johnson and Deputy Simmons of the Williams County Sheriff's Office arrive at Jack's Ranch. Johnson and Simmons make a standard search of the house and property for injured or deceased persons. Detective Amanda McNamee responds and obtains a search warrant. Several other sheriff's officers arrive on scene, and they conduct an extensive search. What that search, what that search turns up is grisly indeed. Jack's bloodied eyeglasses, three ammunition casings from a 300 bolt action savage rifle, bullet fragments, tire tracks, blood that appears smeared by the tire tracks, body tissue, bone fragments, and the gold cap from a back tooth. All found in proximity of what appears to be two large pools of blood in the driveway. Given the evidence turned up at Jack's ranch, it seems likely that he's come to some harm. In spite of the grim scene and remnants of a violent interaction, law enforcement can only treat this as a missing person's case.
1: Which, I mean, there's no body, right? We know that. There's no person, but... Well, we don't call this Midwest almost murder. It, so
0: we don't, and, and no. that was tough for me at first in researching this. Was okay, you've got all this evidence, and it looks really bad. Why isn't this a murder right well, away? Because you have to, you have to assume this person is is injured but alive, and so yeah, missing persons. I mean, we but
1: certainly don't know if if they're they're deceased at, at that point. But I mean, clearly something bad happened it's not a good look no Mm -mm.
0: so who who was jack shoal jack was employed with the city of williston for 25 years until his retirement in 2011 he also served on many local and state water and sewer committees jack was an accomplished horseman he loved riding horses and participated in branding roundups and trail drives with his friends and area ranchers he was a great caretaker of his animals who made sure he was close to home to care for all his horses He was also an avid North Dakota history buff and learned as much about he could uh, of the region. Jack was a well-known hard worker who rarely took a day off. He was a member of the NRA and numerous horse clubs and associations for trail riding and horse enthusiasts. Jack was well-liked by friends, neighbors, and the community at large. After retirement, Jack entered into a partnership with his brother Scott in Epworth Resources and JMS Rentals. Jack owned and operated Little Muddy Ranch and Little Muddy Valley Subdivision. Like many other landowners in western North Dakota, he too had benefited from the oil boom. Jack...
1: Hang on. So you said that... So he was still ranching at the time of his disappearance, or at the time that he was yeah asleep. he had he
0: had retired after a few decades of work for the city of Williston. Right, but he was still all his ranching coworkers loved and, him, but yeah, he was still, he was still ranching, ranching and engaged in several other operations and businesses. Um,
1: but but it had been two days since his girlfriend had talked to him, right? I mean, so it, the day prior, the day uh, prior. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, a rancher uh, who's that dedicated, or a rancher in general, isn't going to just. Up and leave without making arrangements.
0: Yeah, unlikely. Yeah unlikely Uh, jack and his brother scott are partners in a company called epworth resources the company's main purpose is selling frack water to oil drilling companies fracking doesn't happen without water fracking basically means pumping a mixture of freshwater sand and chemicals into the ground at high pressure which wedges earth and rocks apart so if you can provide fresh water and dispose of polluted water you can get very very rich in a fracking boom Jack and his brother, their businesses, were one of the leading businesses providing water in the region. Epworth also owned land in the area and has investments in an an industrial park and camper site, both of which situate them very well to make even more money from the boom. But it's easy for business dealings to get sketchy fast in the Wild West atmosphere of the Bakken. Epworth ends up in a costly and lengthy dispute with a company called Two Rivers Pipeline Company. Two Rivers rented land from Jack in his industrial park, and Jack hired them to do some excavating work. But Two Rivers sends Epworth a six-figure bill for work they never actually did, and the two companies end up in a lawsuit. This dispute stands as a clear sign that all is not as simple or straightforward as it may seem in the life of Jack Shoal. There was also some recent upheaval in Jack's personal life. Jack endured a battle with cancer. Although he had valiantly fought the battle and won, the rigors of chemotherapy were hard on him. Even though their relationship over the years had been strained, in the summer of 2012, Jack's son Justin with no work in Minnesota, came to Williston to help his dad on the ranch. Jack was generous and provided his son with a place to live, a well-paying, a well-paying job, and the promise of his own house on the property. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Things seemed to go well for a time, but started to go awry when his son's ex-wife Christine and her daughter Tessa show up. Jack begins to feel taken advantage of. Jack and Christine argue frequently. It gets so bad Jack eventually tells the family they have to live in the camper. About three months After about three months, Jack, Justin, and Christine have a huge argument, possibly about money or inheritance, and Justin and Christine leave Williston and return to Minnesota. Hmm. Jack's love life is also kind of complicated. He's been dating Kelly Blumberg for a while now, but their relationship started before either of them were divorced. When Kelly's husband Terry found out about the affair, he was obsessed with following Jack and Kelly all around Williston. And one time he even grabbed Jack and threw him on the ground. In fact, Jack Scholl once told his brother Scott that if anything ever happened to him, there was a tape, there was a tape recording above the radio in the barn regarding threats made to him by Terry Blumberg. When questioned by Williams County Sheriff's office about Jack's disappearance, Terry Blumberg admits to owning several guns and lists them. He does not list a 300 bolt action savage rifle. When deputies search Terry's house, they find a 30 caliber round for a 300 savage in an ammo box in the basement. They ask him again if he owns a gun belonging to that ammo. He says he does not.
1: And at this point, they still hadn't found the human remains or anything. No, no. This
0: is the, Jack is a still a, a missing person at sure. this point. This was all during, uh, of course, following a missing missing persons. You're going to work through the interviews of those mm-hmm. people. Those people closest sure. to Jack, and there was a known sort of dispute between Terry Blumberg and Jack. Um, Terry Blumberg admits to sort of menacing Jack and his ex-wife uh, throughout Williston and, and and admitted and agreed to the search of his premises. Sure. Um so uh, Jack's relationship with Kelly Blumberg was secretive. She didn't attend family gatherings with Jack and in fact many of Jack's friends and neighbors had no idea about Kelly. Hold there up. was also hold, hold up yep. so
1: it was like a complete secret.
0: It it was sort of secretive. Kelly but didn't after
1: after it was no longer an affair.
0: Yeah. Um as 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 it, as the research turned up, she didn't come to any of the family gatherings. Um so yeah. But they were they would hang out around town. I don't know how secretive it was, but it was secretive in some sort of way. You know, I don't know if they were fa- I don't think they were Facebook official.
1: Well, I mean, that's still kind of dumb, but
0: There was also some recent indication that Jack wanted out of Williston. Our speculation is that he'd had it with the oil boom and just wanted out. He wanted to move to Montana to buy a ranch and be with his horses. But that was not to be. So Jack's missing for over three weeks. Even with body tissue, tooth cap, and blood on scene at Jack's ranch, without suspects, motive, or a body, it remains a missing person's case.
1: Well, and it it could. I mean... Really, if you look at what was found, you don't know where the body tissue came from, right? Or what part of the body it came from. Uh, Tooth cap, he could have just gotten punched in the face. Uh, I mean, it it still easily could just be a, a missing person.
0: For three agonizing weeks, it was treated as such. Law enforcement works countless hours of overtime trying to find Jack Shoal. Uh, foot and aerial searches of his 100-acre ranch were conducted by volunteers, many of them organized by the Shoal family who enlisted many people from the area to help take part in the search for Jack. They even took to Facebook to get, a, get the word out about Jack's appearance. And the town of Williston rallies behind the family. Community members help... Search for Jack, they hang missing persons posters all over town, and they paper every car they can with missing persons flyers. Hundreds of people all over the region engage on on the Facebook page set up by the family to try to elicit information about Jack's disappearance, keeping the story alive and hoping for any shred of information that might help find Jack. As with any missing persons case, law enforcement conducts numerous interviews with people obviously connected to Jack but there's no outward indication that those closest to Jack were involved in any foul play regarding his disappearance. Days pass and weeks still with no sign of Jack. The Shoal family is frantic with worry. Eventually, they offer a $30,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for Jack's disappearance. And I gotta tell you, Don... It's a move that will eventually bring all the rats out of the shithouse, expose the meth-fueled subculture of Western North Dakota, and help break the case wide open.
1: I feel like, I feel like the drama just got turned like way up. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: On May 13th, North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigation Special Agent Carissa Remus gets a phone call from a woman named Beth Heinley.
1: Hold on, before you go there. You even say her name very dramatically. Like, well done.
0: Known locally in the meth circles and even by law enforcement by her nickname, Cock Breath Beth. I,
1: I wish, I so wish that you had made that up. I wish I... I, I, I not made up. I, I feel like even if, if the law enforcement in the area, I can't, I, like, I'm not even adult enough to... Say that out loud. Like, I can't. Um, if law enforcement knows someone as, by that name, uh, that's, that's not good.
0: Heinley yeah. tells, <laughs> Heinle, <laughs> Heinle tells Special Agent Remus that her friend, Teresa Steen, had been visibly upset for several days and admitted to her that, quote, something awful had happened on the property owned by her brother, Isaac Steen. The Steen family is also not unknown to law enforcement. The Steenland, known locally as Steenville, is comprised of ramshackle trailer houses, several run-down buildings and residences where an unknown number of Steen family members reside. It's like a compound where they can escape the eyes of normal society. Think of it as a tweaker's squat zone. Many of these houses don't even have numbers, and suffice it to say, Steenville was not present on the most recent census. What special Agent Remus learned <laughs> <laughs> okay. What special Agent Remus learns in the phone call changes everything in the shoal case. Heinle tells agent Remus that Teresa Steen confided in Heinle that she had seen a dead body covered by a board in a garbage pit on her brother Isaac's property. Teresa Steen also told Beth Heinley that a guy named Ryan Stensicker had approached her brother saying he had hit a large coyote and needed to dispose of it and asked if he could throw it in the garbage dump on the Steen property. Teresa also told Beth that Isaac said the front of Stensiker's gold Cadillac Escalade was damaged. With this information, the Shoal case is no longer a missing persons case, but a potential homicide. Special Agent Remus immediately notifies Detective McNamee, and she and several other law enforcement agents descend upon Steenville. They knock several times on the door of Isaac's home, and eventually, Teresa Steen opens the door, telling them Isaac is not there. Detective McNamee then confronts Teresa with Beth Heinley's statement. To their surprise, Teresa admits it's true, that she had gone with her brother Isaac down to the garbage dump and had seen, quote, a hand, a foot, and part of a pant leg sticking up out of a hastily dug, shallow grave. Later that same day, law enforcement discovers Isaac Steen at home, and he too agrees to talk with the officers. Isaac admits that about a month previous, Ryan had come to his house acting very weird. Stensiger had asked if he could, quote, throw out some trash from his vehicle, and Isaac allowed him to do so. Isaac recounts the story of Ryan hitting the coyote and needing to dispose of it. He tells law enforcement that he did not know what Stenziker was throwing out, but when he went himself later to throw out some garbage, he also noticed a foot, part of a leg, and part of the body sticking up out of the ground. Isaac tells law enforcement hold, that he on, and Teresa... yep, And did nothing? Did nothing. Okay. Just yeah, wanted just to make sure. Yeah, just pretty casual. Oh, there's a body in my dump? Um, Okay. I guess it's normal in Steenville. Well, Steenville, they're not a, on the census. They don't need to qualify a body in the dump, do they? But it,
1: but it's not a legit garbage dump, right? It's just, it's just. It's garbage like a on farm property, family dump, kind of. But, but just like garbage it's, on their property, right? Sure,
0: it's a homemade landfill.
1: Well, so honestly, this would probably be one of those properties it's kind where like the county. A big pit. Well, but the county would get involved and be like, "You got to clean it up." Like, yeah. is that? Maybe, I can't. Seen? I can't
0: confirm or deny that. Well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, Isaac does tell law enforcement he and Teresa make... They, they made several attempts to contact Ryan about the body. They're like calling him and say they said, hey, you need to get rid of that or do something different with that. That's a quote. Meaning the body that she and Isaac had found in the garbage pit.
1: Oh, so that's what they did. Yeah,
0: they they, call, I think they, 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 they left said, a note on his car.
1: You need to get rid of that. Yeah. Not the human. No, like, yeah, that's... And it's, I mean, it's, dis- it's no, like, you don't but, call the cops,
0: no 911 at Steenville.
1: But I think, th- I mean, this just shows the, the the amount of disrespect. You know what I mean? I know that that sounded like I was making a joke, but I mean, it's, right. it's, it's I, I'm not. I no, mean, it's that's terrible. That's a, that's a human body, and uh, it's utterly despicable. That's how they, this just shows the, the type of people that are there.
0: Oh, just wait. Later that day, Ryan Stensiker calls Isaac Steen and tells him he's taking care of it, that he has taken out the trash. According to Isaac Steen, when interviewed by law enforcement, Stensicker had confided in him that he and a couple of his buddies were hired by the Sons of Silence Outlaw Motorcycle Gang to perform a hit on Jack Shoal. That same day, law enforcement secures a warrant to search the residence of Ryan Stensicker. During that search, they find a 300 bolt bolt-action Savage Rifle in his bedroom, under the mattress. Stensicker is arrested for felon in possession of a firearm. You know what wasn't at Stensicker's residence? His gold Cadillac Escalade. You see, about a week following the disappearance of Jack Scholl, on April 30th, Stensicker reported that his gold Cadillac Escalade was on fire. He tells officers sparks coming from the vents ignited the vehicle. There's a thorough investigation, and Deputy State Fire Marshal Ken Sisk said in his examination, it showed the fire started in the back seat of the SUV. He also reported finding a melted plastic gas can in the vehicle. The next day, it's a, on the,
1: the back seat,
0: yeah, right there. It's brilliant. I mean, criminals are smart people.
1: Well, I mean, that you can just. That would lead me to assume that you're you're going to start it where you're
0: innocent until proven guilty.
1: Well, right. I'm All not right. I'm not questioning him on that yet. But but would you start the fire like where you had transported the the remains? I
0: I'm not good at starting I'm, fires for I'm, dead I'm bodies. I'm probably digging too deep I, and maybe overthinking no, it, which is not. Surprising. We'll get there. But I mean, he yeah. he he claimed the fire started in the front of his vehicle. And there was nothing in the evidence to show. There was no burn marks underneath his hood or anything. Well, and if you can see... He had see. pretty clearly used an accelerant and... Right. Yeah, and I don't... His effort to dispose of what is potentially evidence doesn't sound like it, it was uh,
1: well, and at the very done least very efficiently. At the very least, it's insurance fraud. So.
0: The next day on May 14th, Authorities return to Steenville with a warrant. When they arrive at the garbage pit, Isaac Steen points out tire tracks and says they will lead them to the body. Recalling the tire tracks and smeared blood on Jack Scholl's driveway, law enforcement takes tire track casings before going deeper into the garbage pit. Following the tire tracks on the north face of the dump, half covered by garbage, debris and dirt, they find a partially decomposed, bloated male body with gunshot wounds to the head, face, and left arm. The trauma to the head and face is so brutal that the bones of the face are broken, smashed in, as are the bones in the left arm. An autopsy later reveals bullets from a 300 Savage Rifle lodged in the trachea and lungs, the same kind of rifle that, it, that had expelled shell casings on Jack Scholl's driveway just three weeks earlier. Law enforcement make two other significant discoveries in the steam garbage pit. Agents find a Ruger three hundred eighty semi-automatic handgun on the body, a gun known to be owned by Jack Shoal. They also find, believe it or not, two pieces of mail addressed to Ryan Stensaker. Where
1: where do they find the handgun?
0: In a jack in his inner jacket pocket, his inside jacket pocket. And Jack, Jack was pretty well, pretty, pretty known amongst his family, big staunch 2A supporter, usually carried a gun um, on, on, in a holster. Sure. For whatever reason, this time it was in his inner jacket pocket. So in his holster or in his vehicle is, is what I, I discovered generally is where he carried his weapon. On May 15th, this is the next day. So everything, these last few sequences, this has been May 13th, 14th. Now on May 15th, as I said, the rats are coming out of the shithole. Aaron Freed, father of Teresa Steen's child, reported to law enforcement that Teresa Steen had informed him Ryan Stenziker, Jeremy Wyrock, Beth Heinley, Isaac Steen and Teresa Steen were all in Ryan Stenziker's vehicle when Ryan Stenziker killed Jack Scholl. Freed stated that Teresa Steen had told him Ryan Stenziker killed Jack. Freed also stated that Teresa Steen told him Ryan and Jeremy loaded the body into the back of Ryan Stensicker's vehicle. Freed informed law enforcement that prior to them killing Jack Scholl, Ryan Stensicker, Isaac Steen, and Jeremy Wyrock met at either Wyrock's or Isaac Steen's and planned the murder. So, contradictory to what old Cockbeth Breath had to say. <laughs> Aaron Freed's testimony, the father of Teresa Steen's child, according to him, what he heard, they were all there. Ultimately, six people are charged in connection with the murder of Jack Scholl. Ryan Lee Stensicker for murder, Jeremy Wyrock and Ronald Gibbons for conspiracy to commit murder, Isaac Steen and Teresa Steen for suspicion of facilitation of murder, and Amber Jensen for suspicion of hindering law enforcement. So who are all these people, and how are they connected? Stensicker and all his buddies were selling meth in Williston, and all the sellers were girls working for one lady. This woman uh, was essentially running a meth ring, and some witnesses believe this woman running the meth ring may have wanted something Jack had. Um, Jack, of course, he's found with a gun on him. Um, And if there were girls there in the vehicle when it approached Jack's house, right? So reflecting, reflecting back on the incident, um, if there there were girls there, perhaps Jack would have been more willing to get out of the safety of his home to help, a damsel in distress, as it were.
1: Well, but and did, he, did he know them?
0: There is no connection anywhere between Jack Shoal and any of these people. Jack's a farmer and a rancher, so many farms and ranches keep anhydrous on their place. Jack didn't. There's also speculation that meth cookers could have been pressuring him to acquire some. And Ryan Stensicker had a lot of girlfriends who were in it for drugs and money. He had money in his family, but really, Ryan's just a mama's boy who wants to be a gangster in a small town. He's not smart, and he's easily manipulated by women. Many feel Ryan Stensicker was not smart enough to do and plan this murder. I mean, they find the murder weapon in this guy's mattress. He, He makes the claim that the hit was called for by the Sons of Silence, but let's let's reflect for just a moment on the Sons of Silence. This is an organized crime syndicate biker gang, one of the most notorious in the country. They've got their shit together. They're not going to hire somebody so incapable of doing a murder as is Ryan Stensicker. They're not hiring the guy that lights his car up Lights his car on fire in the side of the highway and then hides the murder weapon underneath his mattress. It's the stupidest story I've ever heard. And it literally sounds like something a bunch of tweakers came up with sitting around a frickin' foil at 3 a.m. <laughs> That's what that sounds like to me. Um, so yeah, well, people mean, do he- know that Ryan hung out frequently with Jeremy Wyrock. And Wyrock started showing up a lot at the Stensicker house in the days prior to and after Scholl's disappearance. It's also alleged that Jeremy Wyrock directed traffic at Stensiker's house to remove all Stensicker's property the day before law enforcement showed up. So in summary, this is an entire group of family and friends who make, use, and sell meth together. They're connected by drugs, sex, and money, and have shared many of the same sexual partners. And somehow, this group of, of meth-fueled lunatics ends up outside of Jack Shoal's house and they murder this man in absolute cold blood. Ultimately, only Ryan Stensicker stands trial for the murder, and given how the evidence stacks up against him, he seems like the obvious suspect. And really the the trial's pretty quick. There's just one excerpt from the trial well, that I want to share. Minute,
1: before you go that far, I want to yes. I want to do the connection between do you, it. between everybody because this is it's weird. I mean, it. But it it just shows kind of the mm-hmm. that lifestyle of of uh, drug users, we'll say. Uh, so Aaron Freed, Jeremy Wayrock, Amber Jensen, Teresa Steen, and Isaac Steen had like a like one big love triangle. So Aaron well, had. Well, that's a,
0: more like an oval.
1: <laughs> well, a little bit. I think like, you I, got I, one, one too well, many
0: for a triangle there, fam.
1: Like. Corner, side, corner, side. Uh, I don't know, but... Um, like, I'd have orgy to out, circle. But that feels... So, I turned in my card but, years ago. <laughs> uh, too far. Um, so Aaron has a kid with Teresa. Jeremy has a kid with Amber. Ronald Gibbons was also dating Amber. I mean, it, it's... Uh, it feels icky. I mean, really. It, you it know, is. It's, it's, no, it's, it's gross. Uh, big time. Um, and, and I... I'll add that to my list of questions.
0: Yeah. Ahead. So the, the, the one excerpt from the trial I wanted to share, Steve Moddinger, defense attorney. Uh, he's got Amanda McNamee, the lead investigator, on the stand. Quote, you ever find a motive for this thing at all? Or are we just in the dark in terms of why? Amanda McNamee, quote, we do not have a motive. No. Moddinger asked about the investigation ending up on Stensiker. Quote, were there other suspects? Yes, we did have other suspects. Were you able to determine that Jack Scholl had some people that weren't very happy with him for various reasons? Quote, Amanda McNamee, yes, there were some people that were not exactly friends with Mr. Scholl. So this is just to summarize that um, there was never a motive found for this murder, And that's really one of the big questions. The verdict came after less than three hours of deliberation by a 12-person jury. This this trial actually occurred in Minot. The guilty verdict came... After just five days of testimony, there were 31 witnesses and more than 150 pieces of evidence entered into the record. The prosecution succeeded in convincing jurors that they could convict Stensaker even without any witness, without any witnesses or direct evidence of his involvement. "Quote, Kristen Shue, uh, pr- the prosecution attorney. I'm sorry if I got that name wrong, Kirsten. Um, ask yourselves at some point." Hasn't there been enough denial? Hasn't there been enough blame shifting? At some point, all these different elements converged to reach the conclusion that Ryan Stensicker murdered Jack Shaw with a firearm beyond a reasonable doubt. Jurors agreed that the circumstantial evidence was enough to convict Stensicker. After court had adjourned, the defendant had a verbal exchange with some family members in the courtroom claiming his innocence. Ryan Stensicker, quote, never seen him. I've never seen him. Give me a lie detector. I've never seen him. Diane Scholl, quote, you should have opened your mouth and said something then. But in the end, Stensicker was led away in handcuffs. Uh, real quick, Stensiker claimed that he was framed, that the evidence was planted in his mattress, and... Investigators ruled that a near impossibility because that evidence would had to have been pla- would, would had to have been planted while they were present in searching his residence, and so and he does appeal this. The appeal is reviewed by the North Dakota Supreme Court, and it 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 does uphold. But it is rare to get a conviction with no witnesses and, and no motive. But ultimately, you've got his mail on the body you have the evidence uh, of his gold cadillac escalade being burned and he had ripped out all of the carpet in the back of it and everything and and had painted it red get and and the last thing that, that confirmed that it was his weapon in fact is that his 300 bolt action savage rifle when you when you put a bullet in it and, and 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 pulled the lever it made a very specific mark on the bottom rim of the bullet and so those three casings at Jack Scholl's house had that same mark they that it. was it matched. Sure. So they matched it with forensics, and the follow-up uh, back on on Terry Blumberg, the boyfriend of, of of Jack's girlfriend Kelly, when they ran the forensics on the ammo they found at his house, it didn't have that same marking. Sure. So just well, a quick follow-up. So but, so, did, so, but did he
1: did did he ever readdress the whole Sons of Silence thing? I mean, I feel like that's a bold claim. I'm. I'm not going to uh, accuse a motorcycle gang of hiring me. I feel like that's that's ballsy. That's that's
0: a tweaker story, man. Well, like, I know, like, but, like for I mean, me, but like but in all, all the time I, we spent looking at this case, like that's just some harebrained idea they came up with that. Sure. You know they they, they 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 thought it would be neat or whatever, but uh, well, I'm again, not
1: like it holds, no, I'm not it holds water. O-
0: but. <laughs> only somebody who doesn't, only somebody who knows nothing about doing murder would hire somebody so incapable of accomplishing murder as is, as is Ryan Stensicker. Sure. So
1: so what about the other the other charges? So the
0: Those. other the other folks, yeah, we've we've got that. Most of them, unfortunately, um, a lot of them walk. They don't have any evidence or witnesses to to, to really confirm that Wyrock and Gibbons were involved in the murder all they have is the statement of aaron freed and what he's telling them is based on somebody else's conversation so yeah so yeah
1: so jeremy jeremy wayrock wyrock uh his charges uh which were originally uh conspiracy to commit murder that one was dismissed without prejudice same thing for um ronald gibbons and dismissed without prejudice so what does without prejudice mean it's that means it, it's not dismissed forever. It it can be revisited. So if it was dismissed with prejudice, it's done. It's over. So this is without prejudice. So if they find something or, uh, you know, some evidence that t- does a tie new them. new evidence, a witness. Then, yeah. Then they, they can come they, back to it. They can still it. charge him. Yep.
0: They can still tie these people. Because it's, right. it, it, it's just so clear that Stensinger didn't act alone.
1: No. No. And so then Isaac Steen, uh, his original charge was... Um suspicion of facilitation of murder, so he actually did charm a uh, time for the charge of hindering law enforcement yep. him and, and Teresa both same I thing think, with right? Teresa yeah, they both pled guilty and served time. Amber Jensen same thing she pled uh, pled guilty to hindering law enforcement. What does hindering law enforcement mean? You know that's when um, basically you stop any charges or you stop law enforcement from doing their job in simple terms um, Amber Jensen. No stranger to law enforcement, even recently. No, none of these people. Are. Well, most of these people have have right.
0: have a, a rap sheet. Right, but looking most at of hers, it's drug related, though. Most of these people, most of them didn't have like a violent, um, extensive history of violence. It was all use of meth and and paraphernalia and stuff like yeah. that. Well,
1: hers is his extensive. Her, yeah. mo- more than the others. No, these. So, uh,
0: yeah. so That's pretty interesting. Yeah, Stensiker's in jail, but we still have a lot of questions. One more time, real quick, Sons of Silence. No way. Not buying it. Um, But let's ask, was this a robbery gone wrong? What does the house tell us? Nothing of value is taken from Jack Scholl's home. The house wasn't robbed. Police even found cash and obviously the gun on Jack's body. There was gold and silver and other valuables left untouched in the house. There was no apparent effort made to rob the house.
1: It was not a robbery.
0: And additionally, well, why would someone take and hide a body if it was just a robbery, right?
1: Well, why would they take the body and not anything else? I mean, it's not a robbery. It's it's not. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's not. And Jack, to be clear, Jack lives on a ranch. There's one way in and one way out. The driveway is really, really long. I mean, you you know, and you, you see and hear somebody coming down that driveway almost immediately. It's the end of April. It's not like a blizzard. It's not crazy. So... Why? What, what What? compels him to confront the people in that car? It's fair to wonder, did Jack know somebody in that car? Could he have been lured out by women in this meth ring, posing as damsels in distress, only to be ambushed? But the question still remains, for what? Even if that was what they were doing, why? And Jack was a prepared man. Again, he would he would not have approached a carload of dudes. He was not going to get out of his house for with, with three, four armed men standing out there. And Ryan Stensicker, by all accounts, he's a weak methling. It would have been very difficult for him to pull this murder off by himself, load the body up, dispose of the body. And no one views Ryan Stensicker as the leader or brains of the group. I mean, these are people who live off of other people. They steal, they lie, they connive. And to some degree, many believe they planned the murder of Jack Scholl. But why? Was someone else the mastermind? Who benefits from the death of Jack
1: Shaw? Well, why was he targeted? You know, and, and I certainly don't want to spill, speak ill of someone who is deceased, you know, but was he into, was he into some secret shit that, that nobody, that nobody knows about, you know? And I mean, I'm certainly not accusing. It's just a, it's just a question. And this I'm sure, I'm sure law enforcement hopefully has, has looked into that. I mean, but there's something just does not feel like It, it just doesn't make sense. You know, it, there are no ways to tie them together.
0: None. Not a single witness. And I, I, I ask myself, well, if Stensiker's taken the fall here, if he's guilty, what does he have to gain by not rolling on everybody else that was there? And the only, I mean, the only conclusion and, I only, can draw is, is that rolling, maybe.
1: But, but saying that. Saying a he's motor- innocent. But saying a motorcycle game, gang yeah. hired him. I mean, who is he more afraid of at that point?
0: Yeah, say say well he one well, he claims his innocence the whole time. I've never seen Jack Scholl in my life and he claims his innocence and, and and there you go. So it it it's yeah, it's fair to wonder was there something was there something Jack was involved in that was more secret than anything else that he had did? um or were these were these people hired by somebody else outside The the clan, like who? Think of you. Ask yourself: Who hires a bunch of meth heads to do murder? Somebody who's really dumb. That's who. Not necessarily
1: because if they're high on meth, and meth is not, you know, obviously it's not one of the better drugs. Um, You, if 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 somebody is, if somebody is, it's not going to be a professional hit. But you're going to hire somebody who is probably not going to remember you. They're not going to. I mean, it's a theory. I'm not saying it's a good one, but it's a theory. I mean, you hire somebody who is who is going to not remember you, not uh, and likely get themselves caught, right? Well, it, uh,
0: not if you, well, if you're the sons of silence, you don't want your person to get caught. Well, it certainly like, wasn't. You're going probably going to keep yeah. that in house. Like that's that's an in house hire.
1: They didn't. I, no, they did not hire that that kid. Oh,
0: yeah. you, You'd have to be dumb to hire. This this group of people to do it, but well, I think
1: yeah, uh, there's oh my,
0: and and, and ultimately they, they they tried, so it it is technically for people like Y-Rock and Ronald Gibbons and and the others, it's it's an open case. Maybe maybe at some point Stensiker has a change of heart and wants to uh, turn state's witness, um, right. um, Against the other people who were involved in this murder. We've seen other cases where people changed their mind after many years
1: right right.
0: Uh, sources for this episode of Midwest Murder research research for this story is predominantly comprised of case files and legal documents in North Dakota public record Midwest Murder is produced by the Good Talk Network. A special thank you to Dr. Seanan Tangney, whose writing and research is contributes to Midwest Murder. You can catch her work on the new season of Myth America, a history podcast on the Good Talk Network, starting on January 25th. Additional resources include The Intercept, The Fiscal Times, Investopedia, The Irish Times, The Williston Herald, The Guardian, Minot Daily News, Bismarck Tribune, Grand Forks Herald, and the North Dakota Newspaper Association. Midwest Murder airs every other Monday.
1: Rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends.
0: Thanks. We love you guys. Mm -hmm.